Welcome to the Digital Workflow Dentistry Podcast Series. We help dentists adapt, adopt, and advance in the world of dental technology. For more information about upcoming lectures, webinars, and podcasts, please go to our website, www.digitalworkflowdentist.com, at Instagram, at Digital Workflow Dentistry. Good afternoon, dental internet world. My name is Dr. Vishal Sharma, and I'm once again here alongside my friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Parchewski. Mike, it's good to see you. How's the first part of winter treating you? Uh, so far, so good. I've uh, found myself a little busy, and uh, and to be honest, um, so far, I haven't been on the ski slopes, which is odd for me in the month of November to not be on the hill. Last year, I was on the hill in October. Yeah, it's full winter here. Uh, in fact, I said good afternoon, but when you look outside, it's the dead of night right now with the uh, days obviously being shorter. Uh, from an astronomical point of view, I suppose that happens every year, so I'm not sure why it's surprising. Uh, but speaking of astronomy, uh, you're going to be teaching an Astra dental implant course this upcoming weekend in Toronto at the Academy in Mississauga. Uh, tell us about that course and what it's going to entail. So that course, um, what we do with that course is the first day we spend it on uh, CBCT training. So uh, dentists that are new to the C new purchasers of CBCTs or um, are just want more training on using their CBCT, this will be the first day really takes them through the Cydexis software workflow, how to look at airway analysis, sinuses, going through implant planning, uh, multiple implants, single implants, um, you know, what you're taking into account when you're planning those. And then day two, we get into actual, uh, go through the Astra implant and the new uh, um, Prime implant kit. And we take them through planning a case, uh, milling a guide, and then placing on a simulated um, cortical cancellus model, uh, placing that implant using their guide. And then they will remove that guide and follow through with an OSIX bone graft uh, to get a feel for socket preservation as well. Well, it sounds like a fun, exciting weekend. I'm actually going to be auditing the course, but it's completely sold out. So I'll be sitting on a stool without my own place in the back, but looking forward to spending some time with you in Toronto and uh, once again, hearing your presentation. Mike, we thought it would be a great idea to go through just a quick question and answer session uh, for those people who are potentially looking to get into implants. And I thought I'd ask you a number of questions, obviously related to the course, uh, but also from a more elementary perspective. So are you uh, ready for a quick uh, 21 questions or a, a fire away and answer away? Okay, let's do it. Let's so, do it. Mike, obviously uh, you're, you're very, very adept and you have a great protocol for the initial consultation, that co-discovery when patients are coming in interested in implants. Um, and obviously, I think that's been really, really well covered. But what I would like to know, uh, or especially for some of our listeners, what is your diagnostic assessment for an implant consult? So what exactly is involved in that? What are you looking at? You referenced the CBCT that is going to be on day one of your course, um, you know, cortical cancellous bone. So what are you looking at from bone density and attached gingiva perspective? Walk us through that quickly, please. So, uh, yeah, great question. Um, first of all, I think it's really important to recognize that planning a case on your with your prime scan or your CBCT and getting your scanner and, and CBCT together is really important. If you can figure out exactly where an implant's going to go and plan it before you do it, the beauty about that is you know all the problems you're going to run into, you know whether or not you need to graph this case well before you even place it. And that's where I feel 
digital planning is, is at the forefront of implant dentistry right now. And so what we do in our, when a patient comes in is we're getting a digital impression done right with the prime scan right off the bat. And we follow that up with the CBCT of the area where the missing tooth is. And that's a, you know, that's our, that's for our consult. And that is a non-optional thing. So if they want to come in for a consult to our office, it's a five by five low dose CBCT at a minimum combined with the, you know, that, those quadrants, that side of their face uh, with a prime scan so that we can digitally plan a, a crown in the prime scan. And then we can merge that file into with the CBCT into the Cydexa software so we can actually simulate uh, the full planning and full placement of that implant in front of the patient because we use that consult also as our treatment uh, presentation. So you're at that point looking at obviously shape of the ridge, whether there's some convexities or concavities, whether it's flat. You're going to be looking at anatomical features such as uh, you know the nerve or whether there's some sinus involvement, adjacent root impingement, et cetera. And then, of course, you and I are both big into screw retained restorations. So you're, you're planning this as a crown down implant methodology, essentially. Yeah, that's correct. And I don't know if, um, if you've ever seen where just somebody randomly sends you a, a pan and says, hey, can you put an implant here? And uh, for me, when I look at that now, it used to be you'd look at it and go, oh, yeah, I'm sure we could do that. You know, yeah, it looks like there's enough height of bone there. Now, when I look at it, I look at it through a different lens. And if, if I don't have a digital scan, uh, digital impression and a CBCT, I really find it hard to visualize because I want to see the three dimensions. Mm -hmm. I want to see all the different dimensions of the bone. And one thing that's often missed is when people have CBCTs, they're often looking there, looking at their CBCTs, but there's a big piece that's missing when you analyze your CBCT for an implant. Sure, it gives you a lot more information, but the digital impression gives you soft tissue. Yeah. While you can make out a hint of where the soft tissue is on a CBCT, it's, it's not as clear cut. So that I think is the magic. And so I always call it the magic yellow line uh, when I do my presentations. And that's the, the, the demarcation of the gingiva that overlays the bone. And it's that piece that I think where the magic happens, where I now know, do I have enough bone and do I have enough soft tissue? As, as you and I both know, following zero bone loss concepts and some of these concepts that we've learned, like with Kyle Stanley and some other, um, you know, really great educators in, in modern implant dentistry, is that you need at least three to 3.5 millimeters of soft tissue above the bone. Yet, in most extracted cases, um, you know, up to 60, 70% of cases only have an average of two millimeters of soft tissue over top of the bone after a tooth's been removed. So if you're placing your implant at bone level on that patient with that 1.5 or 2 millimeters of gingiva, you're impinging on biological width and you will get bone loss uh, on that implant. And then you're going to have the whole sequelae of, of issues with peri-implantitis on that case, right? So for the attached gingiva, to reiterate, with the uh, prime scan, digital scan, you're looking at the amount of attached gingiva that's going to go over from the buckle to the lingual aspect. And then you're still utilizing your CBCT to approximate the thickness of the attached gingiva? Yep. Right. Yep. And so are you doing anything with the low density uh, or low dose, pardon me, CBCTs on bone density? Are you evaluating that at all? Um, you know what? On the, um, if you use Simplant, yeah. Simplant, you can get into um, the Houndsfield units and you can actually look at bone density. And when you're planning a case through Simplant, 
you can actually get a full D1 to D4 bone profile. And so if we have cases where where bone density is an issue and bone healing is an issue, we'll, we'll often put that case into Simplant and, and assess that a little bit more um, thoroughly. But in general, when we're, when we're looking at our CBCT, you still can tell, do you have a well-demarked cortical, cortical plate? Um, but then on top of that, what we're allowed to see is with our gingival architecture, um, how thick is the gingiva over top of the bone? And so now we know if we place our implant in ideal depth for biologic width, can we place that implant successfully in the parameters uh, between the adjacent teeth and with the parameters of the, of the planned crown? And if the answer is no, there's a buccal bone defect, well, then we have to deal with our options. And you know, you and I have both done the profile implants, which allows you when you have that sloped uh, bone on the mandible, uh, three, six, four, six area, it allows you to be able to follow the better profile and um, thus the term, the profile implant. But that is a sloped, uh, a tapered implant. Now, um, so you're already able to treat it that way. Number two, though, let's say you're you're using a different implant system or you're not going to use a tapered implant. Well, then your second option is to say, I'm going to have to soft tissue augment this case or I'm going to have to place the implant subcrestal or the defect is as such that it's not just a soft tissue defect, but it, when you look at the, from the, uh, you know, let's say the axial view and you're looking above and you see the bone is tilting in, you might also have a bony defect. So now you're, you haven't even started anything on this patient and you've already planned soft tissue grafting, you plan some bone remodeling, and then you, you can start to measure how much is it. Now, if I've got a half a millimeter to a couple millimeters that I'm going to have to augment um, just around the upper, let's say the upper couple threads, you can do that at the time of surgery. But if you're doing a, a, a bigger amount, you know, where you're, you're going to need 20 to 30% increase in bone width in that area, or you're taking care of a, of a bony defect, then you might look at the planning and say, look, we better do this in two phases. Let's graft it first, get the hard tissue in line, and then come back and replan this case now that we have better profile, right? And yet we still haven't even numbed the patient. Right. Okay, and let's let's revisit uh, a couple of those uh, points that you made because we're going to get into socket preservation and grafting uh, towards the end of the, the Q and A period. Um, so you discussed thickness of the attached gingiva uh, post tooth extraction. If you have thinner attached gingiva, you're typically burying that implant below the uh, crest of the bone. Can you talk us through those parameters? Yeah. So um, a lot of the literature that's been that that comes out of the zero bone loss concepts. Um, is, is really um, identifying that biologic width around implants um, is at minimum 2.5, okay, which was, you know, um, done in a lot of the early, early research, but now is, is more predominantly um, successful for not having thread loss around your implant is when you establish a bio biological width that's over three. So we're talking that 3.25 to about 4.5, with the window being sort of the three to five millimeter as the range. So that that's the, the target, right? And if you only have two millimeters above um, a ridge, well, then you either are putting the implant below the ridge, like subcrestally, or you're going to have to augment the soft tissue. And that could be done preemptively or it could be done at the time of placement. 
Walk through that uh, preemptive um, placement or augmentation, or I guess the the day of as well. What are you doing to augment that thin attached uh, crestal tissue? So let's say you were you for because of the adjacent teeth or the where your bone is positioned, you decided you don't want to go subcrestal in this case that you you want to augment the tissue, and you don't want to do it preemptively. You're going to do it at the time of uh, time of surgery. So there's a couple different ways to do it. You could take and flap it from the more lingual or palatal side, right? So that you're bringing the soft tissue over and you can even fold the tissue under itself depending on where your deficiency is. The um, other alternative you have is once you've placed your implant uh, and you've done your flap is you can release your flap um, and you could place a like a two millimeter uh, healing abutment on top. And so that's going to act as a tenting and then graft, uh, soft tissue graft, maybe alloderm with some, with some PRF over yeah. top or a few layers of PRF to augment that tissue. Um, and so basically through a tenting process with a little higher healing abutment, um, which would be the most common way that, that we would do that. But the other choice would be to loosen the flap, uh, to release it so that you could put something like al- um, alloderm or something over top um, and leave a cover screw, alloderm over top, some PRF to protect the alloderm, and then suture that over as a, is another way as yeah, well. with primary closure, yep. and then obviously you're uh, exposing that down the road. So, perfect. Well, let's uh, jump into the course this weekend, and uh, we discussed Astro. One of the benefits of Astro, of course, is the profile implant. We actually just planned one today, and that's been a great adjunct for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Mike, why is Astro your preferred uh, system? Um, so, you know, for me using the Astra system over the last several years, um, what I like about the Astra system is the, the system itself does not require real high torque for success. It is a compressing implant. Uh, so the thread structure of it is basically from top to bottom, besides the micro threads, you're in a real compressing mode with that implant. And the benefit of that is, um, a very non-traumatic implant. You know, you're not really causing any trauma or microfractures to the bone as you place that implant. Um, it's a very passive placed implant, and um, the success in the literature with this implant and with the system coding um, is that you can. Uh, your target is 20 to 30 uh, newton centimeters of torque. You're not trying to torque this implant to 40 or 45 like some of the other systems. And so. Uh- you were just discussing the implant coding. Walk through some of the differences with Astra system versus other uh, competitors or other systems. So, so every every system has a has a coding uh, for their for their implants. Basically, uh, a rough and titanium surface. Um, the proprietary surface on the Astra is an osseo speed surface, and um, so basically, what they've done is they've taken the titanium surface, they've chemically modified it, and you know, they've approached it on a, on a nano surface uh, topography modification. And, and again, that's kind of their, their proprietary way that they've treated. But what they've found with the osseospeed surface is that um, in the literature that they're getting less of that dip from the placement. And so, you know, less of the change between when an implant is placed, you will lose some of your torque, and then you'll regain that as the implant integrates. And that, that dip, the implant curve dip that occurs with implant placement, that that dip is a smaller, a smaller dip with the osseospeed surface, and you're getting to integration faster. The interesting thing is there is um, not just 
in the literature, but also um, a lot of case studies of people that have placed Astra implants that are essentially spinners, you know, um, realistically 15 or less torque, and they take. And that's attributed to their design and it's attributed to that surface. So, and I have seen that in cases we've placed implants um, that we just don't have high torque, but we've got good placement, uh, followed the proper principles, and that implant has, has taken well. Let's follow up on that lower torque requirement for an Astra uh, placement. So obviously the thread pattern is a little bit less aggressive than you know, uh, a Nobel uh, active, for example, much less aggressive. And uh, consequently, the uh, Newton centimeter requirements are going to be lower. How does the prime taper compare to that, uh, Mike? You've placed a few already. And what uh, void, pun very much intended there, what void does the prime taper system fill in the Astra workflow? Yeah, so it's a good question. So the new prime taper implant, basically the modification that they've made is in the first threads. Mm -hmm. So the first threads at the apical side of that are cutting threads. So you now have some cutting threads at the bottom, compressing in the middle, and micro threads at the top. By adding the cutting threads, you're, you're filling two gaps that tend to occur and two problems that occur with a compressing implant. First, it's a bit challenging in immediate cases to get a, you know, some sort of torque or, or grip without having a little bit um, more aggressive threads at the base. So you have something to grip, right? And to develop some torque in very minimal bone that occurs in an, an immediate socket. Two is if you're dealing with um, an implant that's placed tightly between two cortical plates, one of the problems with a compressing implant is you compress against the cortical bone and essentially the cortical bone does not compress back and so you don't have a rebound against the, the cortical bone and you will get that implant sometimes riding off the cortical bone and then essentially stripping itself out because it doesn't have that aggressive thread. And so the, the new prime implant takes care of that as well where um, in those implant placements where you are, are getting into contact with the cortical bone, it doesn't just bump off the cortical bone, it will actually grab in a little bit to provide you that torque into the cortical bone. Well, we'll get into immediate implant placement again later on in the Q&A session. So I think that's a, an adequate answer. Um, a lot of people, of course, are new to the system, especially for Canadians. How have you found it so far? Uh, really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the guided uh, version of the kit will probably be available um, next year, yeah. early in the year. Um, so, you know, while I'm a big guided proponent, we've been doing, still doing a lot of our guided using the Astra guides and then just using the comparable implant, uh, from the prime to finish, to finish the procedure so that we're still following that guided process. Um, but otherwise the prime kit's nice. It's very simplistic. Um, they've, they've been able to figure out, um, a sort of a pattern with the drill bits to, have have less bits and uh, a little bit quicker, more efficient system. So it's been good. But the um, for those that like the feel, the more positive feel of an implant, where you can feel it grabbing, which sometimes uh, with the Astra compressing implant, you don't feel that same oomph. Um, this kind of gives you the best of both worlds. So it it is a it is a very nice implant. We've placed it in a couple of immediate sites and. Um, you can definitely feel that positive 
um, torque that you're gaining as that implant bites in. That placement stability, yeah. So, well, let, let's expand on immediates as you mentioned that. I assume that the prime taper is pro- predominantly being used in implant, uh, immediate implant uh, situations for you. So you and I have been following some of the protocols of Linkovicious. You discussed zero bone loss protocols with Kyle Stanley. Linkovicious is a big proponent of immediate implant placement. Mike, how do you determine which patients are suitable for immediate implant placement and which are best suited for, you know, soccer preservation to two-stage surgery? So, yeah, it's a great question. If you, if you asked uh, Thomas, um, he would tell you every case is an is a, uh, immediate case. Um, for me... Um, I'll tend to go with the cases where we have a, um, where we feel that we can remove the tooth, still have an intact buckle plate, um, and be able to place an implant into some nice bone, either apical or palatally to that buckle plate so that I feel that we can have that stability. If I'm going to worry about the buckle plate being lost, or if I've got a tooth that's uh, that we're extracting that's coming out the buckle plate. And, you know, we're going to have a real challenge um, predicting that end result. Um, then for in my hands, I will prefer to do that in a, in a two-stage fashion. Or if depends also on patient, um, you know, patient medical history as well will we'll play a factor as that. And walk through uh, infection, which is uh, where uh, Linkovicious may be is very enthusiastic and uh, aggressive uh, and maybe non-traditional in some of his protocols, obviously showing a lot of success. But how do you manage uh, infected tooth? It has obviously a failed endo and there is suspicion of infection. What do you do to manage that pre-extraction, uh, pre-surgery in your office? Yeah, so my definition of, or I guess my rule of thumb on when to let's say extract an infected tooth and not graft to let the infection heal is when there's a cellulitis. So if there's a cellulitis, a facial swelling, you know, that's with that, then we're typically going to get the tooth out, drain the infection, put them on antibiotics. And about four to six weeks later, we're going to go back in and then reopen and graft that scenario, you know, graft that defect, do all of our, our bone work uh, to set up that implant site uh, around the four to six week mark. If you wait too long to go back, then you're going to get that resorption and you're going to lose that soft tissue profile and you're going to have a hard time getting it back. So that's kind of the window on that. Now, if we don't have cellulitis, then I'm also fairly aggressive on getting in there. So we'll often do PRP, PRF, um, and to help us get some of the body's immune system um, in the in their graft to help fight that. Um, and then what we'll do is be very aggressive on the cleaning. So we want to make sure we clean out that socket. Uh, we want nothing on the walls. We'll use like a number six or number eight round burr, sometimes on a, on a latch or a straight hand piece with lots of irrigation, clean all that PDL, make sure that that socket is well cleaned out. Sometimes doxycycline scrub, um, chlorhexidine rinse, um, all these types of things that we're going to do. And again, if we use chlorhexidine, it's very diluted, um, usually just dipping a scrub brush in. Um, again, chlorhexidine has shown to uh, inhibit fibroblast activity. So, um, But our go-to really is like some doxycycline powder from a capsule mixed, scrub that in the socket, and then we'll flush that out with um, some PRP or some PRF exudate, flush it out, and then proceed uh, with grafting that case. 
Yeah, you got me on the doxycycline slurry mix uh, a couple of years ago, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. It's been effective for us, certainly. Um, well, let's pivot and let's have a quick discussion on soccer preservation then. So what materials are you using? Where are they indicated? When are they indicated for soccer preservation specifically, Mike? So if we have a four-wall, you know, a fairly intact socket, we, we extract a tooth. Um, the, goal, the goal there is, one is um, sealing, a coronal seal of some sort um, to mimic a guided bone regeneration process. And then if you do that, if you cover the top of the socket, then um, you're allowing that bone regeneration to occur. And so I, I want to rely more on the body to fill that in with its own bone than putting in, um, you know, allograft or, or um, uh, xenograft especially. So, so what I'm tending to use if I'm, is in my, if it's a bigger socket, the will use sticky bone off of a cortical cancellus allograft. Sometimes if we have the ability to get some scrapings of autogenous bone, we'll mix that in and we'll loose fill that. Okay. Okay. So we're not compacting. We're just keeping that loose fill. We're trying to get some, some activity, some angiogenesis from the PRP. We're trying to get some of the autogenous bone cells in there again to seed and to stimulate that bone matrix to form. And then what we're doing is usually we'll put a couple layers of PRF and if we have anywhere where we're not going to be able to close that very well, um, and again, primary closure, I don't flap a socket to primary close. Uh, I'll use a membrane and PRF to close as opposed to moving my connective tissue um, over, a, over a socket. Um, now, if I'm doing a sausage graft or something more um, ridge, uh, a ridge build, well, that's going to need primary closure, right? But generally, I need to protect my, my graft so that the body has a chance to clot that and start to heal it. And so that's where we're going to be covering that socket. So it's either we're a couple layers of PRF um, and, and suturing that. Potentially, we're going to do a ostex membrane, and then I'll put a PRF over the ostex membrane to protect any part of it that's exposed and then suture that. I love monoglick sutures. Those are amazing yeah. uh, sutures. Um, if it's something I don't need to hold and I'm not relying on my suture, well, then a chromic or a gut suture is fine. But if I if I worry that I need that stitch is important to me, then it's always the monoglick. And you're yeah. finding that with the PRF, you're not as concerned about primary closure. You're not going to be getting soft tissue infiltration past that. It seems to be effective for a period of time. Correct. And then when you're utilizing a membrane, Mike, what type of membrane are you utilizing? Because it sounds like PRF and uh, Mike, of course, just taught a PRF course this past weekend that I unfortunately was out of town and I missed. Uh, so excited to hear about the summary uh, on that. It's not something we're currently doing in our office, so aspiring to it. And maybe one of our future podcasts will be on that. But it sounds like you're routinely utilizing it, Mike. So uh, if you're utilizing a membrane, is it a resorbable membrane? Is it a non-resorbable membrane? Where does that get sandwiched with the uh, PRF? Uh, we go resorbable. Okay. Now, um, the literature on whether or not PRF can regenerate bone um, is here and there. Okay. You know, there's literature that says if you if you isolate the soft tissue from a socket, the body will fill and matrix mm -hmm. that in. For some people, it's like, whoa, that's a big gamble. Um, but on the flip side, if you put BioOS or a Xenograph in there, you're actually making the socket worse, right? Or you plug a socket full of gel foam, it's actually 
worse than just leaving it open, right? Because you're plugging it in with a loose clot that's not going to perform any kind of scaffolding for you, right? So it's, you're creating more of a dead space. So, but if you fill it in with PRF and then you membrane the top so that that PRF, because the PRF has a limited, you know, two to three week window of releasing um, the, the uh, growth factors, um, beyond that, then you're relying on the body to fill that spot. So I still do like a little bit of a uh, cortical cancellous mix in there, maybe some autogenous if I've got it. Um, and then when it comes to the membrane side of it, the question is, do you put the PRF under or over the membrane? And the reality is, is that PRF is helping with your blood supply and your angiogenesis. So if you're not going to have good blood supply to the underside of your membrane, for whatever reason, maybe... Um, you know, there's not really great blood supply in that area. It's going over top of cortical bone. Mm -hmm. Then having some PRF or some sticky bone or some PRP in the in the area on the inside of that membrane helps to stimulate that angiogenesis on the inside of the membrane. But it the literature is, you know, Picos and a lot of these guys, uh, world famous guys, are you know have have demonstrated over and over again that PRF provides huge benefits to protect a membrane on the top. So if you're, if you're, let's say you're placed a, a coverage on a lateral sinus lift, uh, um, let's say an OSIX membrane over a lateral sinus lift, then you put a few layers of PRF over it, that's providing a much more protection for that, gives it some more angiogenesis potential with the soft tissue closing over, but also protects that membrane from movement and also helps that, that healing to go uh, faster. So you're sometimes placing it underneath the membrane closer to the socket and then sometimes over top of the membrane closer to the soft tissue uh, for the benefits that you just discussed. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's pivot over to augmentation. So we've discussed um, socket preservation. You've talked about the materials, what the indications are, when you would go immediate. Uh, if you have that buckle defect that you had alluded to earlier, um, and maybe it is a, a two-step surgery... What materials are you specifically using? What's your flap looking like? And how are you um, ensuring that that uh, graft remains in place or is uh, pinned in place? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it is a big, big question. Um, so, you know, we could talk about it for, for quite a long time because it's a real patient-by-patient patient scenario. But if you think about um, sort of my go-to is if I'm doing something that I feel we're just need to augment horizontally, not super aggressive, um, I'll stick with the resorbable um, membranes and products, okay? Um, I might use um, some tenting screws in order to keep the membrane from collapsing as, as opposed to a reinforced uh, PTFE type of membrane or a non-resorbable membrane that will uh, require removal. And um, the issue for me in my hands, um, I've used some bone mesh and, and products like that on occasions um, and have had success with that. Um, covering the bone mesh with PRF does help to prevent that burn through. Um, but, you know, me using the uh, reinforced non-resorbable membrane, um, you know, has been a challenge and I have to pick my cases, uh, for myself. Um, and I have great periodontists and, 
and surgeons close to me that if if I've got a case that is going to need uh, a ton of work, I've got people um, that are doing this day in day out that I'll I'll refer to. But if we're taking a look at a you know a bread and butter type of case, you know let's say it's a a, a three five or four five that has been missing for a while, um, so it's got a bit of a defect there, and we're you know we're not we're not recreating a huge amount of nature here. We're just bringing it back to its normal anatomy. Um, then I'll go with that sausage technique, the the sandwich technique with the bone graft, and it'll be a cortical cancellous mix. I'll try to get some autogenous scrapings in, in there. PRP, um, so it'll be a sticky bone. Uh, we will perforate the bone, um, you know, microperf the bone to get bleeding in the area. And then uh, bone graft goes in place. As far as flap goes, flap design is going to be get that flap loose enough for primary closure, obviously, and to accomplish primary closure without tension with um, the bone graft in place, okay? And that's where I sometimes run into trouble with massive grafts uh, where you need to do a massive release, um, and that's where I sometimes will will, will go to my friends. Um, but in general, for those smaller ones where I know I can do a vertical release, score the periosteum at the base, um, to release that, that's a big piece and releasing the periosteum that one to two millimeters across the base. Um, what I want to do is I want to layer that down and I, and I want to layer that down so that I have a separate flap of the periosteum. So the periosteum now becomes its own flap for two or three millimeters. And so when I have my graft in place, I put my first, and then for me, I use a OSIX membranes a lot. I, I wrap my custom fit OSIX membrane over the graft and now my my suturing is grabbing and it's usually a 5 um, monoglick is, is what I'll do or um, um, other other sutures like a, um, a PGA 5 it works well too. But I want something that's going to hold and long lasting and, you know, Vicryl is another good one. And, but I want small suture and I'm using a Castroveo holder and I'm going down and I'm grabbing that periosteum and then I'm coming over grabbing the lingular palatal tissue and I'm making multiple runs like that so the 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 sausage graft is being held in by the periosteum suture then the whole flap closes and now I've got closure over top of that so if you don't get the flap stabilized that's where you run into all the problems of of that of that graph not taking. You uh, ran a really good online webinar or lecture on on grafting. So for those people who've not checked it out, I would strongly encourage you to do so. And perhaps Mike, because this is such a broad topic with so many di- different variables and obviously decision trees, maybe we should run a podcast and. Uh, a quick YouTube informational session on it in, in the future as well. So I think that covers soccer preservation, augmentation. Um, you know, we did discuss some immediate implant placement. How does the length and width of an implant factor into long-term success? And when you are in that um, simplant planning uh, phase, how do you determine the width versus the length? And what are you optimally looking for? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. They're, they're all, they're all great questions. Uh, really good questions. So, Here's the thing. Um, we have uh, emergence profile. So when you follow that zero bone loss concepts, um, you know one of the things you're thinking about is biological width, but you're also thinking about emergence profile. 
One of the biggest problems with implant restorations is aggressive emergence profiles. When you have emergence profiles and emergence angles greater than 40 degrees, literature says even, even closer to 30 degrees uh, becomes a problem. But as you go to 30 to 45, you're creating that, that ledge, yeah. right? And that is a peri-implantitis uh, cesspool there. So the, the natural tooth, when you look at a natural tooth, emergent profiles are seven to, you know, seven to 12 degrees, less in the anterior, more in the posterior, but it's almost straight up and down. So the problem is that we're creating all these small implants with these massive emergence profiles and wondering why um, the implant take, you know, took very well, but it's now has peri-implantitis. And interesting, there's, there's a lot of studies out there that it's, you don't get a lot of peri-implantitis with healing abutments. You sure do when you restore them. So it's not the implant or the surgeon that caused the peri-implantitis, it's the restoration. And so... Um, if we are looking at our case and we figure that, hey, we can only get a, a 3.5 millimeter implant um, in, in a molar space, well, that emergence profile may end up being quite aggressive. And the only way to control it is either go wider or go deeper, right? Because if you go deeper, you have more running room. And if you go wider, then you're more emulating a real tooth. So when you're looking at it and you think, well, I can only go so far in depth and I can't go any bigger, well, this might be where you need to start augmenting that bone because you're going to skirt the biological principles. So that's part of our treatment planning, right? Yeah, and, and I know um, you're a big proponent of the Atlantis custom abutments and you actually years ago... Um, persuaded me to move away from some of the stock titanium abutments. We, of course, don't have true abutment availability in Canada, so we just have the, the generic uh, abutment height. Are you going to be covering any stock abutments in your course this weekend, or is it predominantly the customized aspect because you can get that better, more um, specific emergence profile? Uh, yeah, good question. So, you know, first of all, I'll just say, um, you know, Michael Norton um, at an implant symposium recently was, and, and for those of you, Michael Norton, big you know, major, major dentist in implants and uh, invented the Astra implant. Now, Michael Norton's comment was the single best, um, a single best restoration for a, a single tooth is a, um, um, an Atlantis custom abutment, um, titanium hydride coating. So that's the gold coating with a custom zirconia crown on top of its screw retained. So what, you're, what we're hearing there is titanium nitride coming out of the implant into zircon, polished zirconia. Um, so you don't have any glazing on your zirconia until it's above the gum line, or you could just polish the whole thing. But that in the literature has been the most successful um, biological, um, you know, similar to a real tooth. And that is, um, you know, my go-to. So... That is, if I can do that all day long, I'm going to have success with my with my cases. So, so that's our real go-to. Now, you can do like a tie base, which gives you a titanium tie base. But you know, if you have a, um, you know, in in Canada, you only have the the flat tie base with no with no lift. The problem is is that in a lot of cases you're creating a poor emergence profile, so you're creating problems from the get-go. So if you're using the true abutments that allow you to offset your tie base higher 
so that you can still create a proper emergence profile. Then you could continue with manufacturing your zirconia, polished zirconia on top of that, or do like a hybrid. Now, in an anterior, if you do a hybrid crown, think about if you wanted to do a hybrid crown, you still have your titanium connecting to your implant. Then you've got your zircon polished zirconia um, substructure that comes up to the, to the margin. And then you could place Emacs above the gums attached to that to get your aesthetics. So as long as we're thinking about um, polished zirconia in contact with the gingiva, um, that is what's biologically been found to be the most compatible to our tissues. So we were discussing fibroblast inhibition with chlorhexidine rinses earlier. Can you just quickly elaborate on why polished zirconia, not glazed zirconia, provides the better uh, biological interface with the attached gingiva right uh, superior to where the implant's placed? Yeah, so it's a good, a good, good question. So what they're finding with the zirconia surface is the zirconia surface has quite a microstructure. And, and that microstructure has been found to be compatible with our tissues and our tissues will actually form he hemidesmosomal attachment. So you'll actually, on a microscope, um, see that there's attachment that's occurring between our soft tissue and the polished zirconia. When you remove that tooth, let's say you, you, you remove that crown uh, and abutment from the, you would actually see tearing and blood underneath because it wasn't that it's inflamed, it's that it was actually attached. So um, that's the what they're finding in the literature. Now, as soon as you polish it, um, you're, you're, and, and you polish it, you're maintaining that substructure. But as soon as you glaze over the polish, now the glazing creates this um, almost like um, too smooth and a barrier, yeah, to the attachment. But it, it ends up being similar to the other products that, that they're finding problems with, which is glazed um, ceramics and also polished gold. So polished gold going um, like a really gold crown is too smooth. Yeah, but the nothing nothing, can, nothing yeah. can attach to that, right? Yeah, and Kyle Stanley talks about that extensively. So um, I think you've answered almost all my questions, maybe not in order, and that's probably more um, on the uh, interviewer as opposed to the interviewee. But the last question is, uh, describe the difference between a tissue-level implant and a bone-level implant. Okay, so uh, another good question. So... Um, when we talk a tissue level implant, we're talking about an implant that is going to be going down into the bone with a polished portion of the implant that is coming through the tissue. There's other other uh, tissue level concepts that are out there. For example, placing an implant to the you know to the prescribed depth based on your biological uh, width parameters, and then placing um, a uni abutment uh, or a multi uni abutment right off the bat, so that you are stopping there's nothing that's going to be happening now at that at that uh fixture level so you're moving any anything that's connecting anything that's happening is taken away from the tissue level uh or away from the implant level to the above the tissue level and so you're always preserving that connection uh for the implant um so that's really the benefit of that tissue level is that you are moving a micro gap away from from bone interface and you're preventing any further intervention in there. You know, when they do all on fours that are fixture level, and whenever those are removed every every year or two years, they take them out to clean, and you unscrew everything, you're ripping everything apart under there. But um, 
But because everything is always going down to that base and screws to that fixture, you're constantly attracting bacteria to push down to that level. Whereas if you can stop that and have everything that occurs above the tissue so that you don't have changes that are occurring, um, and this also fits with the, some of the new parameters and new designs that are coming out, uh, one abutment, one time, you know, smart abutments, all these other technologies that are coming out, um, smart fixes, all these abutments, the goal is, is that you're not going in and out of the tissue repetitively and so you can allow healing to occur and then preserve that. That's a great answer. We are nearing 50 minutes, which uh, means if your implants have lasted 50 minutes, you're at least getting some level of integration, but it's getting a little long for our podcast listeners here, Mike. Uh, what a great podcast. I love the Q&A format. Uh, at the end of the weekend, when we're back, we'll do a follow-up on this and continue on with that. I think it's such a fascinating topic, and you're such a wealth of information and knowledge. So, Mike, it's a little too late to hit the slopes, but uh, let's get packing to get ready for Toronto. Thanks for uh, being a part of this and some some great answers today. Thank you. Right. Thanks a lot, Bish, and thanks for the great questions. And again, we're going to post some more videos about these topics and a little bit more hands-on stuff uh, coming up on our YouTube channel. So, Feel free to like and subscribe um, at Digital Workflow Dentistry is our Instagram. All the links are there and www.digitalworkflowdentist.com. Everybody, please take care. Thanks.